0: Later cases have suggested that it has to be an actual attempt to overthrow the government entirely uh, and not just uh, the operation of one particular law. So there's an interesting question here whether what's going on with trying to overthrow the government completely, and you could argue that by seeking to disrupt the certification of a, of a lawful presidential election that that was in fact what they were doing. On the other hand, you know, they could probably argue that uh, they were just trying to disrupt this one thing and they didn't want to bring, you know, the entire government to its knees. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network.
1: Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams, coming to you from Southern California, I write a legal blog named May It Please the Court, and have two books out titled How to Get Sued and The Sled. Before we introduce today's topic, we'd like to take this time to thank our sponsor Lex Reception. Lex Reception is a close-knit team of virtual receptionists dedicated to professionalism, warmth, and 24-7 availability for law firms and attorneys. Sedition is defined as conduct or speech inciting people to rebel against the authority of a state or monarch. Through the Trump presidency, the word sedition has been used rather loosely by both parties to describe various actions that allegedly have crossed certain legal lines. For instance, Attorney General Barr suggested to prosecutors to file sedition charges against violent protesters in wakes of protests across the country. Today, on Wednesday, January 6th, as we're recording this, Congress is meeting to certify the presidential election results A number of Republican members from the House and Senate are challenging the Electoral College results in four states. And as we record this, pro-Trump protesters have stormed the U.S. Capitol and the building is currently on lockdown as lawmakers were in the process of certifying those Electoral College votes in favor of President-elect Biden. President Trump is also under fire for a leaked phone conversation this week with Georgia's Secretary of State, where Trump requested that the Secretary of State recalculate and find some 11,780 votes, which have prompted Democrats to ask FBI Director Ray to open a criminal probe into President Trump. So are any of these actions considered seditious? And if so, what's being done about it? To discuss that today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to be talking about sedition as it applies to the actions during the current administration, the legal line between sedition and free speech, and defining what is and what isn't sedition through several examples. To do that, our guest today is Carlton Larson, a scholar of American constitutional law and Anglo-American legal history from UC Davis School of Law. Professor Larson is one of the nation's leading authorities on the law of treason and is the author of Books on Treason, A Citizen's Guide to Law and the Trials of Allegiance, Treason, Juries, and the American Revolution. Welcome to the show, Carlton. Thank you. Happy to be here. Well, it's certainly an interesting day. Uh, We've got uh, some activity at the Capitol building, but before we get into that, let's talk about what actually constitutes sedition.
0: Sure. So sedition is one of those terms that has a very broad meaning, there's no actual specific crime called sedition uh, in the United States Code. It has been the subject of various acts through American history. I'm sure most lawyers probably remember learning about, you know, the Sedition Act of, of 1918 in their you know, free speech class and, of course, the Sedition Act of 1798, um, both of which were directed primarily at utterances that were viewed as uh, distasteful to the government. The closest thing we have right now in federal law is uh, the conspiracy, uh, the Seditious Conspiracy Statute, which uh, requires some use of, of force to try to prevent the operation of the laws of the United States.
1: What's the difference between sedition and free speech? I mean, certainly prompting people to overthrow a government and then doing so are two different things.
0: Yeah, exactly. And so this was really sort of the birth of free speech jurisprudence in America came out of cases arising from the Sedition Act of 1918, where people essentially argued in in various ways that the United States government was doing things incorrectly, and they were then prosecuted for sedition. And out of that, we kind of got the early dissent, the most famous dissent from Justice Holmes in the Abrams case, essentially arguing that, uh, yes, you do have a free speech right to advocate policy changes, even you you can advocate the overthrow of the government, and eventually the Supreme Court... Uh, came around to that. And so our current law is very speech protective. And to the extent that you can advocate even the violent overthrow of the government as much as you want, uh, so long as it does not create an imminent danger of that happening. And it's not likely uh, that it happened. And that's from the the Brandenburg case from 1969. So much of our free speech law has actually been developed in in opposition uh, to things like sedition acts. And how does treason slide into the whole equation? So treason is defined in Article Three of the Constitution, and it's limited to uh, levying war against the United States or adhering to their enemies, giving them aid and comfort. So that's actually quite a, a narrow definition. Uh, levying war essentially limited to armed attempts to overthrow the government, and uh, aiding enemies—you know—is aiding foreign groups in time of war. So treason is a relatively narrow part of our national security legal framework, and so. Uh, To the extent that sedition laws have existed, they've tended to sort of patch holes that the treason law uh, would leave open. There's lots of ways you can undermine the country even quite significantly without actually committing uh, treason. So we have laws, for example, on espionage as well that catch some of those things that treason law doesn't.
1: Right. And you wrote an article about whether it was seditious to plot to possibly harm Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. What's your thoughts about whether that constitutes
0: sedition? So there's an argument that under Michigan state law, that the people who plotted to do that, if they had carried it out, might have committed the crime of treason against the state of Michigan by levying war against the state of Michigan. Uh, That is, that they attempt to use armed force in an act that would try to change the government and policies of Michigan. So had they actually done it, I think they might have even been subject to a state treason charge. Now, since they didn't do it, they were subject, it was only a conspiracy, then they, they couldn't be charged with levying war. It would only be conspiracy to levy war. And historically, that hasn't been treated the same as treason. Uh, I don't know whether Michigan has a separate um, state sedition law that would reach something like this. Clearly, there's uh, you know plenty of other criminal laws that can come into play when, when something like that happens. And so uh, often in these cases, you will see prosecutors, you know, maybe take a look at treason or seditious conspiracy would ultimately conclude that it's simply cleaner to go with uh, some other offense. I mean, a conspiracy to commit a kidnapping, whether it's the governor or anybody else, is, is still a very serious crime.
1: Well, our own AG Barr suggested to prosecutors to file sedition charges against certain violent protesters. Is that an appropriate suggestion or is that really in the free speech
0: area? Well, there's no, certainly no free speech right to engage in violent protests. I mean, there's there's no free speech right to uh, damage a government building or to try to take it over. And so the, the literal language of the seditious conspiracy statute, which it says, you know, by force to seize, take or possess any property of the United States contrary to the authority thereof, that would seem to literally apply. So it's not outside the realm of legal plausibility to suggest that that statute might come into play. Other statutes are, of course, ones that can be used as well. So I don't think he meant it as saying that they should be prosecuted for what they believed, but arguably for what they did.
1: Right. Well, we have the instance today where the, uh, there are armed protesters who have stormed the Capitol building, there have been allegations that there are they've planted explosives in the Capitol building and attempted to what appears to be take over a portion of the government. What what's your thoughts about that? Where does that fit in our discussion?
0: It's um, really quite extraordinary. It, it's uh, you know I've had all kinds of questions about treason during the Trump years. I never really thought I would uh, get to the point where we'd be asking this one, but here it is. I do think the, the protesters pretty clearly committed a seditious conspiracy. Uh, again, there's language from the statute is by force the execution of any law of the United States and they're clearly obstructing the Electoral Count Act and disrupting uh, the actions of Congress. So I think at minimum uh, they could easily be charged with seditious conspiracy. There's. A possibility that they may have even committed treason by levying war against the United States. Certainly that's how the the framers, I think, of Article 3 would have viewed it. They prosecuted people for armed insurrections that sought to disrupt the application of a particular law. Uh, George Washington's administration protested the whiskey rebels and John Adams's administration protested the freeze rebels. And these were people who had uh, used force to try to resist federal tax law. Uh, So I think it's pretty clear if this had happened in the late 1700s, early 1800s, that it would have been prosecuted as an act of treason for levying war against the United States. Now later cases have suggested that it has to be an actual attempt to overthrow the government entirely, uh, and not just uh, the operation of one particular law. So there's an interesting question here: whether what's going on with trying to overthrow the government completely. And you could argue that by seeking to disrupt the certification of a, of a lawful presidential election, that that was in fact what they were doing. On the other hand, you know, they could probably argue that uh, they were just trying to disrupt this one thing and they didn't want to bring, you know, the entire government to its knees. So my guess is we would not see federal prosecutors bringing that charge. Um, there's also the, the two eyewitness problem, which is uh, a requirement for treason prosecutions that you have two witnesses, to the same overt act. And that might be an issue in these, in these, these capital cases. Two witnesses? Yeah. So Article 3 says for a treason conviction, you have to have two witnesses to the same overt act, meaning you have to have two people who have essentially witnessed it in person and a recording of them doing it. So even if they're caught on video, is probably not going to be sufficient.
1: Hmm. Interesting issue. Well, how far does this seditious uh, and the conspiracy to commit sedition uh, stretch? I mean, we have... Tweets by uh,
0: President Trump encouraging wild protests today. Yeah, that presents a, a difficult issue because again, I think the, the the free speech issues come into play, and the issue would be whether Trump basically incited imminent violence in a situation in which it was likely to result in violence. And I think one could probably argue that both ways. I mean, he didn't. I don't think he specifically used the words "storm the Capitol," so that would probably be a, a bit of a defense. On his side, on the other hand, in the circumstances, you know, sort of an armed mob, and you're encouraging them to you know, at least get very close to doing something unlawful, and you're in a position to be very influential as the president of the United States, it certainly comes close. But my, my guess is, at the end of the day, a court would find uh, there probably were uh, free speech protections, but it would depend, again, precisely on what he said. And I, I try not to listen to the president all that much, so I, did, so I didn't hear his exact words this morning.
1: I can understand your reluctance. How far does the Seditious Act stretch? I mean, does it step into the Congress and the encompass the members of the House of Representatives and the senators who are expressing their election to what has been so far completely certified? Or is that falling within the immunities and the other kinds of issues that they may have?
0: Well, I think it certainly falls within many of the immunities of members of Congress. And But even if it didn't, I don't think one could plausibly argue that those people had committed some type of sedition as a criminal matter. You know, I mean, there's a right to, under federal statutory law, to protest a state's electoral count. And if it was done in, as it was seems to be in this case, in sort of tremendous bad faith, that in itself is not a crime. So I understand why people sort of reached for this word sedition. To describe those members of Congress, but uh, there really is quite a big difference between objecting to an electoral certification and storming the Capitol with a gun. You know that crossover into violence seems to really be what our, our current statutes are are focused on.
1: And there's also been a lot of conversation about
0: not seating certain representatives because of their views. Is that plausible? Um, I mean, it has been done in the past. I mean, there were uh, the expulsion of members in the Civil War for supporting the South. Uh, Refusal to seat has had a sort of a more tortured history. And there's some Supreme Court case law on that. I think in general, it's a pretty bad idea to refuse to seat uh, members of Congress who have been duly elected. And I understand the temptation here, which was that they were, if they're challenging the presidential election, how, how could they not also be challenging their own election? But I think on balance, it's better not to play into that game.
1: Certainly understandable. Well, before we move on to our next segment, we're going to take a quick break to hear a message from our sponsor. We'll be right back. 80% of callers who reach voicemail hang up. Hiring an answering service means that you never miss a lead. Lex Reception can take your calls live, handle legal intake, and schedule appointments in a professional manner for less than the cost of hiring an in-house employee. There are no contracts, and the service is quick and easy to set up. For 50% off your first month's service, visit lexreception.com forward slash lawyer to lawyer. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm Craig Williams, and with us today is Carlton Larson, scholar of American constitutional law and Anglo-American legal history from the UC Davis School of Law. We've been talking about the issues of sedition and treason. One of the things that's come up this week, it just seems like it's been a plethora of news. President Trump is under fire for calling Georgia's secretary of state and uh, presumably pressuring him into recalculating and finding votes sufficient for him to win. Where does that fall on this
0: spectrum? That's it's one of those things where, you know, you, you try to think of all the awful things a president could do and write them up in a criminal code. And you could never you know begin to scratch the surface uh, of, of some of the things Trump has done. I don't think it fits clearly into any federal law dealing with issues of treason or sedition. It may fit into federal law dealing with conduct of elections, and it may well violate Georgia election law. There's potentially some free speech issues that, that may come into play there as well, and I'm not totally up to speed on how the First Amendment has has been fleshed out in that context, um, but it does seem like there's at least potential liability under Georgia law and that the Georgia prosecutors may be starting to take a look at that.
1: Well, and we've had a couple of representatives who've uh, asked for the institution of a federal Bureau of Investigation look into it. And I think that there's been some noise about the secretary or the prosecutor in Georgia taking some steps. So it's certainly something that we're going to be looking at. We've also heard that President Trump may invoke martial law and attempt to reverse the 2020 election. There has been a number of past uh, secretaries of defense and generals and so forth who have staunchly come out against that. Where are we with with that situation?
0: Uh, that strikes me as extraordinarily implausible. Uh, there seems to be zero justification for any invocation. Uh, of martial law. The military leaders have made very clear uh, the military has no role in American elections. And I don't think members of Congress uh, would stand for that. I mean, with with Trump, who knows? I mean, he, he, he could potentially try to do almost anything. But that strikes me as a fairly far-fetched scenario.
1: Let's like take a look back at the history of sedition. I think I read in one of your articles that it's been more than 100 years since anyone has been prosecuted for it. How is sedition itself prosecuted if it's not a specific crime?
0: Well, it's generally it's, – it, well, it's not, <laughs> I guess, is the short answer. And the, the only part of federal law that would really apply would be uh, you know, 18 U.S. seat section 2384, which is, is the con- seditious conspiracy statute.
1: And there's a distinction between uh, federal law and state law
0: on these points, right? Yeah, so states are, are free to have their own laws on, on this.
1: In the present situation that we have with the people in Congress being locked down in the Capitol building, are we considering that to be something that is a a state? How does that play in the District of Columbia?
0: It would certainly be an offense both, I think, under federal law and probably under District of Columbia law as well. So I imagine they could be indicted both in D.C. Superior Court as well as the U.S. District Court. I don't know when you have you know potentially both charges arising out of the same course of events how the dc courts have dealt with that
1: in the context of the original framers how has sedition been viewed Has it been a, more of a an act against as it was in england is that where we we derive this law from
0: yes yeah so i mean under um english law there was the crime of seditious libel which was the crime of of criticizing the government and it was really quite a a pernicious law um, because if you were charged with it, you had to prove that that what you said was true. And and it wasn't the prosecution's burden to prove that it was false. Uh, It was viewed as sort of libelous per se. And then the the burden shifted to you. And most bizarrely, truth was not a defense. So if you argued, well, yes, the government official was as rotten uh, as I claimed they were. And I, I can prove it. That wasn't sufficient. And When the um, Sedition Act of 1798 was enacted here in in the United States, we got rid of some of those worst features of of English sedition law. So the supporters of it said, well, we're actually liberalizing things compared to English law, and so this is is more favorable to free speech. But for critics, that still wasn't enough, that at the end of the day, what you're still doing is is criticizing uh, the government and putting people in jail for that. Uh, indeed, a congressman, Matthew Lyon, uh, was one of the people convicted. He was actually reelected to Congress uh, from his jail cell in Vermont. He was a, a fascinating character. He got into a fight with another member of Congress uh, where he spit in the, in the member's face and the member then attacked him with tongs from the House fireplace. Uh, so violence is not completely unknown to the floor of the United States House.
1: No, certainly not the first time it's been there. I mean, it was There in the American Revolution and again during the Civil War. How did the Civil War play into the definitions of sedition and treason?
0: So during the the Civil War, there was essentially a new statute enacted, which essentially is currently under U.S. code called Rebellion or Insurrection. Uh, And it says, whoever incites, sets on foot, assists or engage in any rebellion or insurrection against the authority of the United States with laws thereof or gives aid or comfort thereto shall be fined or imprisoned for not more than 10 years. Uh, So essentially, it was a sort of a lesser form of punishment than treason, uh, which was a uh, capital crime. And so that was something that was occasionally used during the Civil War. The big issue with respect to the Civil War was when it was over, whether to prosecute the leaders uh, of the Confederacy for treason. And so Jefferson Davis actually was indicted, but his case eventually fizzled out and he received a pardon from President Johnson.
1: Let's talk a little bit about that type of prosecution. There have been significant calls for President Trump's prosecution after he leaves office. I mean, we've we've done a segment on it ourselves. How does uh, the prosecution of a president play into history, and what really are the considerations that we need to be thinking about?
0: Well, I think there's sort of there's two big issues that, that inform this, and in some ways they point in. Different directions. And so getting the balance right can be tricky. And uh, the first is the basic proposition that no one is above the law. Uh, and if the president commits a crime, that he or she should be accountable in the same way as any other citizen. This is certainly true with respect to pre-presidential crimes, but I think it also applies to crimes committed while one was the president. And the impeachment clause is very clear that even if you're impeached a- afterwards, you're still subject to prosecution for crimes that you might have committed. And if we say, well, you don't get prosecuted because you're the president, we're essentially saying the presidency is a license to commit crime. And that can't be correct um, in a nation committed to the rule of law. At the same time, you really don't want to criminalize what might be simply political disagreements. I mean, we don't want to live in a country where after every change of administration, uh, the prior president is then prosecuted for crimes. And and that becomes a big remit for the new president is to go investigate the old regime and see what crimes he may have committed and hopefully send them to jail. And that happens in other countries and those usually aren't countries that we admire. So one has to be very careful that what you're investigating is in fact real crime and not just carrying out a political vengeance. And so getting that right, I think is is going to be enormously important.
1: Well, you've laid out a your second book is really about treason that brings up the story to the present day it it kind of went through a very complicated background of it. Where do you come out on this
0: i'm I'm not sure um and that's partly because I, I I feel I don't have access to all of the relevant data you know as to what crimes would be considered for prosecution, what you know the witness testimony would look like, uh, what the likelihood of conviction would be. And I think it's sort of very hard to say in the abstract, yes, uh, there should be prosecutions for this, that, or for something else. I certainly wouldn't rule them out as a general matter, because I do think that the level of criminality in this president has really exceeded that of of any other president by by a significant margin.
1: It has been an amazing ride. Would it be better for us, on the other hand, to pass laws to circumscribe the president's behavior and rein in some of the far beyond the the bounds of formal
0: president behavior? Well, I think there's certainly places where the statutes could be improved and where we could more clearly limit certain areas of presidential discretion. The, the difficulty someone like Trump has posed is that you just can't imagine ahead of time all the ways in which uh, the laws might be perverted, ordinary discretion completely Abused, and um, you also don't want to hamstring future presidents who do need some degree of power to carry out their responsibilities. And so, it's it's hard to you know think of uh, you know how precisely um, you can avoid some of this very very bad behavior.
1: Well, treason certainly is a, a capital offense, one of the worst violations of American law, and it's been used pretty liberally for the last four years. I think you commented yourself. It's been uh, bandied about so many times. You know, it's just about time for us to wrap up with uh, and get your final thoughts along with your contact information. So I'd like to give you this opportunity to take the floor.
0: Okay, sure. Well, if you're interested in learning more about treason, my book is On Treason, uh, A Citizen's Guide to the Law, and it's written for for non-lawyers, but also I, I think you know for lawyers as well, who will find a lot in here. It's, it's not a subject anybody studied in law school, and so I think there's a lot that is, is interesting. A lot of you know fun stories from American history. And my first book, uh, The Trials of Allegiance, Treason Juries in the American Revolution, uh, is about um, how treason was uh, prosecuted during the revolution, including the strategies that the lawyers undertook um, in selecting juries and conducting the trial. So I think it's a book that many lawyers will find of interest. And if you want to learn more about either of the books, um, my website, uh, www.carltonlarson.com.
1: well, thank you very much, Carlton, for being on the show today. It's been a pleasure.
0: Well, thank you. I enjoyed it very much.
1: I really enjoyed your quote that said you'd much prefer to live in a world where the question of treason doesn't arise.
0: <laughs> That's right. And hopefully we'll be there soon.
1: Good. Well, for our listeners, if you have liked what you heard today, please rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting app. You can also visit us at LegalTalkNetwork.com, where you can sign up for our newsletter. I'm Craig Williams. Thanks for listening. Please join us next time for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to
0: Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes.